0: Support for the Energy Gang comes from Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal company. Homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. Visit dandelionenergy.com GTM to see if your home qualifies. Support for the Energy Gang also comes from Wonder Capital. Wonder has already financed more than 100 megawatts of small commercial solar projects, making it the top commercial solar financier, according to us at GTM and Wood Mackenzie. To find out how Wonder can help you finance your next community or commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com/gtm. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. So it's been a year since the Trump White House slapped 30% tariffs on imported solar cells and modules. The solar industry said those tariffs would destroy tens of thousands of jobs and set the market back years. Turns out the solar industry is a lot more resilient than presumed. We now have the jobs numbers and installation data for 2018. And yes, the tariffs were not good, but certainly not catastrophic. Then, oil giant Shell continues its acquisition spree, this time scooping up German battery services company Sonnen. What's the play here, and what's the end game? We will round out the show with a Trump administration plan to freeze lighting standards. Is this Trump's vendetta against hipster bars using Globe Lights and Edison bulbs? When we finish up here at 10 a.m., we're surely going to take Catherine out to the most voguish bar in Washington, D.C. for a morning birthday beverage of her choice. Catherine, happy birthday. Thank you so much. I have stopped counting at this point. <laughs> Anything special planned besides this recording?
1: Yeah, my husband is taking me out to a romantic dinner, so that will be great.
0: Wonderful. Well, we are all celebrating your life and the fact that you were born to be here to grace us with your analysis and opinions, Catherine is, of course, the chair of Thirty Eight Door Solutions. They are in Washington D.C. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He's with us from just outside D.C.
2: Hello, sir. How are you? Good. In fact, I'm actually back in San Francisco in my beautiful Embassy Suites hotel room. Oh, I can never keep up with you.
0: Okay, well, <laughs> thanks. Six a.m.
1: You sound so close. You know, I heard your voice
0: before we started recording, and (laughs) it sounded so crisp and clear. Usually the voice is a little more gravelly in the morning, so uh, you you hide it well.
2: Well, I appreciate it. It's it's the free breakfast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A quick reminder before we start, we are doing a live show on April 4th in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the MIT Energy Conference. It's shaping up to be a really fantastic event. I love the MIT Energy Conference. This year, there's going to be a couple fusion companies, potentially world-changing fusion companies, uh, CEOs of utilities and DER providers, so a really healthy balance between the futuristic stuff and the distributed stuff happening now, engineers of the world's longest-duration batteries and operators of the windiest grids. Uh, We're going to have people from Greentown Labs, Energize Ventures and Energy Impact Partners and Thought Leaders from NREL and, of course, GTM Research and us, the three of us, the Energy Gang, you get a 10% discount on your ticket, you, the listener, when you use the code Gang, all one word, on checkout. So come say hello, meet uh, tons of smart energy geeks, and watch our live show on April 4th, MITEnergyConference.org, or follow that link in the show notes. And again, use that code Gang, all one word, on checkout. Okay, on to the Trump trade war and the state of solar. Jigger, the sky didn't fall yet, did it? Oh, my God. (laughs) Last January, the Trump administration slapped 30% tariffs on crystalline silicon solar cells and modules coming from outside the U.S. The backstory is quite incredible, really. It was the result of a trade complaint from American cell producer Cineva, which, through its creditor, pushed for steep tariffs as a last gasp as it headed into bankruptcy. They tapped into Trump's China anger perfectly. They timed it just right. We pretty extensively covered this in previous episodes. So we're not going to go too far into that backstory. Actually, go to our back episode from January 23rd of last year for a recap on the lead up and the potential impact we brought the interchange and energy gang together for a supergroup episode. So anyway, here we are a year later, the tariffs we got will be in place for four years, they'll step down each year, basically resulting in a 10 cent per watt price increase on modules in the past year down to about 4 cents a watt in 2021. The tariffs were not as steep as thought, but they definitely had an impact. Um, A lot of utility scale solar projects were delayed. Solar pricing did go up a bit. Jobs numbers declined, but we also saw gigawatts of new manufacturing capacity announced, um, even though there weren't a lot of jobs associated with those announcements. So, what can we say in totality about the tariffs one year later? Catherine, first to you. Trump could care less about solar? Why did his administration all of a sudden find the need to integrate this into his trade agenda?
1: Yeah, so the goal has been from his administration to revive US manufacturing. So that has been the goal with all of the tariffs that they've that they've put out there is that they want to bring manufacturing home. And I talked to John, John Smirno, uh, the general counsel of SIA, who's been involved in this issue for a long time and has been working on this trade case. And he said, yes, um, that actually did happen, that there is more module assembly now in the US. Jinko has a ribbon cutting next week, Hanway QCells has a 1.6 gigawatt plant, LG. 500 megawatt assembly plant that's for module assembly though so that's like best case maybe a thousand new jobs but he said there's not in cell manufacturing maybe um there will be some announcements in the next few months but right now um on that side it did cause thousands of job loss and billions of dollars in investments as a result of that
0: well let's parse the impact First, we'll talk about the actual negative impact. We'll compare that to the projections from organizations like SIA and even us at GTM Research. And then we'll talk about some of the positive impacts and the stuff that wasn't so bad. So, Jigger, what were any bad consequences that you saw?
2: Well, in the run-up to the decision, module prices went very high, right? So, for all of those... Projects that were built sort of at the end of 2017, I think it was. Um, we, you know, we all had to pay an extra 10 cents a watt for modules because the modules were, um, all higher in prices. So that was just a direct transfer of margin from developers who needed that money to be able to reinvest into finding more projects, uh, to module manufacturers. Right. And then I think what you found was that in 2018, module prices actually came down quite a bit faster than everyone expected. Um, the Chinese, you know, largely just ate uh, the tariffs. Um, and even I would say in this quarter, um, you're seeing pretty low prices for modules relatively. But I think that, you know, to compare where the U.S. is versus, let's say, Mexico is or Canada is, you know, today you can easily build a 10 megawatt, 20 megawatt solar farm in Canada or in Mexico for less than 80 cents a watt installed. And in the United States, you can't get it done for less than a dollar a watt.
0: So the US has some of the most expensive solar in the world, and I think has the most expensive DG in the world. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, DG is more complicated because of you know obviously permits and and uh, wiring and and all of that. But I, but I think that the utility scale stuff is not complicated. I mean, it really is um, directly related to tariffs and you know the cost of goods and services.
1: So in the second half of 2019, there's gonna be a 201 midterm review. And I know SIA is pushing for some product exclusions, like on sales. They just said there there should not be a tariff on sales. So they are gonna push that forward with the administration and hope hopefully that will make a difference. Yeah.
0: Okay, so let's break this down by impact. We can talk about jobs and then we'll talk about sectors. Let's actually dial back to sectors and unpack the utility scale issues um, first. Now, the biggest... We. I was talking to Colin Smith, who is a senior analyst at, at Wood Mackenzie GTM Research, who follows our utility scale solar pipeline. And he saw some leading companies drop like 70 or 80% of the projects that they had in their pipeline in the lead up to the tariff decision, because there was this year and a half period where we had no idea what we were going to get. And they were afraid that we were going to get a 40 cent a watt tariff uh, on modules, maybe something even higher, and that would completely destroy the economics of projects. And so what happened was we saw billions of dollars of projects shelved, and then that has carried over into this year. When the tariffs actually did come out, and they were, again, closer to $0.10 cents a watt, it turned out not to have a huge impact. And then because of global oversupply of modules, module prices actually fell and benefited utility-scale developers. So we saw this hangover effect where there was this huge delay in projects, and that did impact some jobs, probably in the low thousands, if not hundreds, um, but we're probably going to see those projects carry into 2019, 2020, and 2021. Jigger, any more commentary on that uh, utility scale pipeline problem, which I think was the most acute related to tariffs?
2: Well, it's all about expectation setting, right? Remember going into 2016, um, we had tariffs on modules from the Obama administration, um, but we had this long-term extension that of the ITC. And so people spent a lot of money finding these projects. And in fact, even today, you've got a 100 gigawatts of utility scale projects that are in various queues for, you know, independent system operators around the country. So it's not like we have a lack of land acquisition that's been done. But I think that this sort of, um, this uncertainty in the marketplace has has left people a little bit Uh, reeling for a couple of reasons. One is that, right, so we expect module prices to go back up again this year because of the run-up to the 30% tax credit going down from 30 to 26% next year. And so there will be a lot of people who buy up modules to store in warehouses to get this construction start designation, which I'm sure we can talk about in a later episode. You separately have a lot of utility-scale developers who genuinely thought That the Obama tariffs were going to be allowed to expire. And then you were going to get, you know, sort of Canadian and Mexico style cost structures in the U.S. And so they bid prices that were, in my opinion, too low in the United States. And so they have PPAs, but the prices are too tight. To be able to really move forward, um, and then the third piece we have is that the Fed is raising interest rates, and so now the ultra-low cost of debt that we were getting before is starting to rise, and that has a huge impact on um, you know what your clearing price is for solar projects.
0: What about the DG side? Energy Sage, which is a price comparison platform, looked at solar prices quoted in 2018, and they found that they were 5.6% higher on average in 2018 compared to 2017. That's fairly substantial for a lot of consumers, and they said that that added up, uh, that the tariffs themselves added up to $236 million in total uh, higher costs for solar projects economy wide. Any thoughts on the impact of tariffs there, which um, you know arguably aren't as high because you have all these other cost factors that are, you know, more important than module prices compared to utility-scale solar?
2: Well, I mean, my own sense is is that, yes, I mean, residential customers in general, you know, just got a full pass-through of the tariffs. There was no really eating it in the margins for the, uh, for the developers. But I also think that what's happened in the last 12 months is a lot of the big guys have started turning their focus onto large CNI projects, right? So large one megawatt rooftops um, because they saw that as a hedge on their business from the volatility in the utility scale sector. So there does seem to be a lot more effort being put into the commercial and industrial sector, which we didn't have, I think, 12 months ago. Okay, well, this gets us into a complicated
0: question about job losses. When the tariffs were first considered and we were playing around with this 40-cent-a-watt number, the Solar Energy Industries Association came out and said, we're going to lose over 80,000 jobs, right? We reported on this number. Seneva's lawyers pushed back and said it was hogwash. But SIA basically argued that that level of a tariff would push solar pricing back to about 2015 levels. We would see a similar amount of development that we saw in 2015, and therefore it would bring jobs numbers in line with that year. So they predicted somewhere around 80,000, 85,000 job losses. Um, Then when the new tariff levels actually came out, the Solar Energy Industries Association said, okay, well, this will slash 23,000 jobs in 2018. We actually only saw a loss of about 8,000 jobs last year compared to 2017. That's only a decrease of 3.2%. The big question is, What's what's driving those job losses? Because it's not even clear that those are tariffs. A lot of the the um, reductions in the workforce come in California and Massachusetts, two states that have had pretty serious policy changes and uh, that have been going on for a while, and also fairly saturated markets. So it's harder for residential companies to find new customers. Jigger, how do we square? Those two things—the reality, the complicated reality of job losses—and SIA's initial claims.
2: Yeah, so I don't know that that's a distinction I would make. I mean, remember, I was the uh, uh, face of the tariffs for under the Obama administration in 12 and 14, and we had similar studies that we had done back then. I think that the the bigger thing for me with these job losses is really it's more around. Expectations of growth, right? So like, I, I still believe that the solar industry has a lot more room to run in the United States, right? I actually believe that we could grow substantially past, you know, our peak, uh, deployment back in 2016 and 2017. And, and, and so those are 20,000 people that were never hired, but should have been. And I think one of our challenges is, is that as an industry, people are in risk mitigation mode. And that's why you see quick job losses in Massachusetts or California as policies change, as opposed to hopeful, optimistic. We're going to figure out a way around this and continue to keep people employed mode, which, you know, leaves people employed and even maybe adds people because you're, you believe that the 24 month cycle between, you know, like, finding a project and then actually bring it to fruition um, is worth starting now because it'll all get resolved in 24 months?
0: I don't know. I, it feels to me like these are directly related to short-term policy changes in leading states and that there is some optimism. California, for example, has a new mandate to put solar on uh, new housing developments. The solar industry is loving that, and that's going to be huge for the industry over the next few years when that actually gets gets implemented and of course California has now put into place the most ambitious policy around the globe for renewable energy development and clean energy development and solar installers have every right to be optimistic but they're not going to hire you know w- well before those policies come into place it I don't know that it's an optimism pessimism issue to me it just feels like there, there are some acute problems in leading states, and that's what caused a lot of these job losses.
2: Yeah, the fact that we have acute problems in leading states and that leads to people getting laid off or whatever, I think it does occur. I'm not suggesting otherwise. I'm simply saying we've unlocked one of the largest states in the country, Florida. Texas is also assuming that they're going to build over 10,000 megawatts worth of new solar over the next few years, right? So I, I think that when you think about where our cost structures are, over half the country pays over 10 cents a kilowatt hour, which with the current tax credit is pretty much cost effective without subsidies for solar, uh, for CNI solar. So like there's lots of areas for growth, right? But I mean, I'm not really talking about the folks who are installing solar on roofs, because for sure, um, you know, those jobs basically are there when people have work to do and aren't there when people don't have work to do. But I'm really more talking about development jobs, right? And the sales jobs of going out and closing more business. There's a lot of owners that I'm talking to who are now saying that they just don't know they're going to get a return on that incremental salesperson that they hire.
0: Catherine, how does that optimism or pessimism play into the way Sia talks about this issue? They have, it's their job, really, to, to message around what they see as damaging policies and say that, that there's going to be this catastrophic impact. And you know, they said that we were going to see tens of thousands of job losses, and of course we didn't. It, how do you feel about the way that they messaged around this in a pessimistic way?
1: Well, I think they had to try to look at the worst case scenario because that's, that's their job. They are advocating for the industry. At the same time, they're, they've already submitted for, um, exclusions in the upcoming 201 review. So they're, they're continuing to move ahead and try to make sure they work closely with the administration to show them um, that, that the go- if the goal is to revive U.S. manufacturing, you have to provide certainty, and you also have to make sure you do it in a way that makes sense. I would mention another set of tariffs, which is the 301 tariffs, which it put- this adds another wrinkle into this industry. The 301 tariffs are on b- raw materials coming from China, like steel, and those tariffs ha- have added costs to the racking and tracking industry in the US. So it's much more expensive now for them to source raw materials. So in a lot of cases, these companies are are getting their products built overseas, and they can import them from China complete. They just can't import the raw material, um, oddly enough. So they can export for production and bring them back in um, to finish and sell. Then companies like Enphase have moved their production to Mexico, SunGro to India. But those other tariffs have put another wrinkle of uncertainty and cost into sourcing these materials.
0: Let's Talk about the manufacturing picture to round out this conversation. So, according to the Solar Foundation, oh, I should mention that these numbers that we're talking about come from the Solar Foundation, which does a census every year, and they they do fantastic work, and they they uh, their calculation of solar jobs gets more sophisticated every year, and the report itself is very valuable. So, a shout out to the Solar Foundation, and and they found that the solar industry is only going to add about 1,200 manufacturing jobs this year in 2019, even though we see like four gigawatts of capacity that are manufacturing capacity that are potentially going to get built here in the United States. So where does that put us? Um, It's no secret probably to a lot of our listeners that the majority of jobs in the solar industry are in downstream Installation and services, not in manufacturing, but at the same time, you don't want to cheer against, you know, this this boom in manufacturing capacity. Uh, Jigger, how do you feel about the situation in manufacturing when you look at jobs supported versus n- gigawatts of manufacturing capacity that have been planned?
2: Well, it's no secret that I think that manufacturing jobs are very difficult uh, to justify when you have. So many negative impacts on the supply chain. So, you know, I think that from that perspective, um, I wouldn't trade one manufacture, you know, you know, 10 service jobs for one manufacturing job. Um, but that being said, I think that the big challenge we have on the manufacturing side is that we've never really had a serious run at figuring out how to get the supply chain back in the United States to build solar modules cost effectively here. Um, and so in general, we're in a situation where we're saying, hey, we've punished a bunch of people in China. Why don't you guys manufacture here? They're looking at their numbers and saying, well, even with the punishment, it's still more expensive to manufacture in the United States. And and so we end up with this circle jerk where there's a lot of like, you know, extra expense that everyone has to pay for in the United States and no really new net manufacturing jobs uh, to go along with that sacrifice.
1: I think what we need to watch in the manufacturing sector is, you know, there are module assembly plants opening up, there may be a cell manufacturing opening soon. But look at storage, let's see what they're going to do next What the what the administration is going to push on um, other types of technology that are working in concert
0: with solar. Wait, wait, what do you mean? what what are you talking about penalties or are you talking about promotion policies no
1: like trying to incentivize manufacturing for for the storage industry
2: is that something that's seriously on the table we we've had those in the past and i think that you know in general it is a a supply chain that we still have in the united states right i mean and this is a thing that people don't understand is it so if you want to manufacture solar in the united states today you have to import a lot of the inputs from China because we don't make some of the uh, back sheets and you know and other materials here in the United States, and so it's it it's actually not possible to make a solar panel here in the United States with a complete supply chain from the U.S. Um, whereas I still think we have that supply chain for batteries um, in the U.S. and so we should try to keep that.
1: Yeah, and this doesn't this doesn't mean that the administration will necessarily know how to execute on that. I just think that that's something that they're thinking about. How how would they incentivize increased manufacturing and
0: other types of innovation that work with solar? So then, to the players involved in bringing this petition to uh, trade regulators, what happened to the two uh, main petitioners, Solar World, which of course was acquired by SunPower and. Uh Suniva. Jigger, where are these players today?
2: Well, Solar World was uh absorbed into Sun Power as a you know way to um figure out a way to make uh sort of lower cost modules here in the United States and I think in my opinion curry some favor with the Trump administration to get their exemption. Um Suniva has been released by SQN from the bankruptcy process and you know theoretically is restarting manufacturing, but I haven't seen any of those modules. And so I think that SQN, you know, basically cost uh this country this extraordinary amount of money and um I think really got nothing for it.
1: Yeah, the the Norcrest, Georgia hundred and fifteen thousand square foot building is vacant.
2: Coming up,
0: Shell gets into distributed battery storage. First, a word about some other distributed energy sources, geothermal heating. You know, I bet a lot of you knew that just five feet below the surface of your home, the temperature of the earth is warm enough to provide you heating in the winter. Uh, But did you know that homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year? Our sponsor, Dandelion Energy, uses cutting-edge geothermal technology to harness the Earth's warm temperature and get those savings for you without relying on expensive, outdated, and dangerous heating fuels. Visit dandelionenergy.com to see if your home qualifies for geothermal heating. We're also brought to you by Wonder Capital. We just published a podcast episode with Wonder on the Interchange podcast. Go check that out. It features Dave Reese, the Chief Technology Officer of Wonder, who was hit with an existential challenge as a software developer, and he created a new framework to completely change his career. We detail how Dave made specific choices to change the direction of his life. We also cover the value of the beginner's mind, 10x problem solving, the solar-first approach to financing, and ultimately... How to Design a Career, a Product, and a Startup Team with Intention. Listen to that episode, produced with Wonder Capital, on the Interchange feed, and you'll find a link in our show notes. A few years ago, if you had told me that one of the biggest oil and gas companies in the world would acquire a German battery provider that networks home batteries, I would have been incredulous. But indeed they have... Shell last week bought Sonin after investing in the company last May. Shell clearly saw something it liked and clearly sees a future in residential battery storage. So what is that future, according to Shell? Jigger, first to Sonin. Uh, What does this company do and where does it fit into the battery landscape?
2: Well, Sonin um, really had its start in Germany, and I think... uh uh, for those who have lost touch with the German market, the German feed-in tariff has gone down tremendously, um, but the retail electricity tariffs are still in the $0.30 cents per kilowatt hour range. And so for those people who are adding solar to their uh, rooftops, um, every time you export power into the grid, you only get, let's say, 12 $0.14 cents for it. But if you actually use it internally, you get $0.30 cents of benefit for it. So storage has been a fixture in the German residential scene for a long time. And, and that's really where Sonin's the bulk of their, their volume comes from. And so what they've done is they've, they've also been testing this software in Germany where you can actually gang all these batteries together and use them as a grid resource, uh, for, you know, different uh, grid uh, functions and to be able to dispatch when the utility needs them. Um, and that that uh, feature to me is what really differentiates Sonin from its competitors.
0: And Sonin was able to do that differently in Germany because regulations allow you to do kind of have a peer-to-peer energy sales model. And that just doesn't really exist in the United States and the regulations for aggregating these resources are so rudimentary or non existent. Sonin's model has been slow to develop here in the US. But assuming those regulations can come together, Sonin is well positioned because it's been using this model in Germany for many years. Catherine, how does Sonin fit into the emerging behind the meter battery picture in your eyes? Yeah.
1: So and remember, this is part of the Shell New Energies division, which has been out there acquiring and investing in very complementary companies. So the Sonin play works really well with all of their connected home. Um, investments there are distributed energy resource investments and then also this other investment in green lots the the ev charging structure so i think it's it's a big signal the both of these investments as
0: to where shell is going to be heading where is shell heading then Um, (laughs) what do you think Catherine? where where's this taking us
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because just a bit about GreenLots, they are the sole provider under Electrify America, which was the Volkswagen settlement. This is a huge play in electric vehicle charging infrastructure and also the energy management around that. So that's how it's complementary with the edge of grid investments. But over the last few years Shell has also invested in other charging infrastructures. They they got Newmotion which is the Dutch charging network a couple of years ago. Ionity is a, a co-investment with the automakers in the EU which is a DC fast charging network. This to me signals that Shell, now remember the oil majors are not monolithic. Shell and BP traditionally have been really forward-thinking on where they're going with clean energy investments, I think they see the writing on the wall. I talked to one of their former leaders when I was in Davos, and he's like, yeah, oil's done. And this was a shell person who said that, and I almost fell over. I was so shocked. So I really think that in order for those companies to be profitable, they're looking at much longer term, we've got to get out of the oil business and figure out how best to position ourselves. Now, since there is not a monolithic industry, you also have the you know the guys like Occidental and Chevron and Exxon that are that are looking at different types of investments. But I think Shell tr- is trying to be a leader
0: do they though i mean i 've had similar conversations, and I have also heard similar sentiment from people working in the new energies group at Shell, but those people are so disconnected from the rest of the oil and gas business. It just feels to me like they're operating in completely separate worlds. And and as we know, there's just going to be extremely high demand for oil and gas for things like petrochemicals, even if EVs start to make a meaningful impact on uh, transportation or if renewable electricity becomes a big play for these companies. There's just going to be huge demand for oil and gas. And uh, I feel like these two groups are talking past each other a bit. They're, They're operating in different worlds still.
1: Yeah, but if you look at the sectors that are impacted by these investments beyond the oil and gas sector, it's the automakers, the utilities, this is a really good natural fit for collaboration, which is the one thing that when I reached out to Green Lots, they were able to talk about is like, they've seen support from all these other sectors in for this investment. And I think, That says a lot because you can then start turning the tide if you have these major economic entities moving forward together.
0: Jigger, what's the end game here in your opinion? Why make this battery storage play of your shell?
2: Well, I think we have to start with just figuring out where green lots and And Sonnen fit within Shell, right? I mean, remember that Shell is a very, very large corporation. So this strategy is not actually one that moves the needle. Um, And so my own sense is this is really a continuation with um, the acquisition of MP2 um in Texas where you know MP2 is yeah, MP2 is an energy
0: retailer. Yes.
2: So yeah, they're an energy retailer, but MP2 was one of the most sophisticated traders in Texas that used physical assets um to help bolster their trading position in um in ERCOT, right? So so they were able to be far more bold about the way in which they traded because if they got it wrong and power prices went to $10,000 a megawatt hour, which they can do in Texas, then they had physical diesel generation backup that they could turn on to protect their position. And and so what Sonin and GreenLots does is do something very similar for MP2. So I think a lot of these... Companies that they're buying really just support their electricity trading business. I don't think that they are profit centers in and of themselves. Like, I generally don't see EV charging stations in the US being profitable in any way, shape, or form. Like, I generally think that the vast majority of people are going to charge their EVs at home and or at work, and that these charging stations that are randomly scattered about will have very low utilization rates. And that's certainly what the data has shown us to date.
1: Yeah, they haven't figured out their business model yet.
2: Yeah, but they're very valuable as of a, like a, putting in a physical one megawatt battery at these charging stations is crucial because otherwise the demand charges kill you. And, you know, then trading that battery capacity into the ISO market is very lucrative.
0: Well, as they figure out the business model, let's talk about how it compares to others that are exploring this space. Inevitably, when something like this happens, you're going to get journalistic organizations using the phrase Tesla killer or Tesla competitor. Is Shell coming in and trying to be a Tesla competitor? I roll my eyes when I read these headlines, but it does beg an important question. Tesla has long been talking about being this whole home services energy provider. They've not executed on that vision in the way Musk has talked about, but they, I think they still see it as somewhat important to the future of Tesla. And the question is, can is a Shell gonna come in through these acquisitions and compete toe-to-toe with a company
2: like tesla
1: i think amazon poses a greater risk to tesla than Ooh, shell
2: their investment in uh, rivian right right so who is rivian jigger so rivian is a you know a new startup uh, company out of uh, michigan that uh, really you know has some cool designed uh, electric pickup trucks and other types of products and they just secured a 700 million dollar round this last week and um and so I don't know that they're a Tesla killer either. I think this whole concept of a Tesla killer is a little crazy. But um, I agree. Um, but I do think that it's great that another company is getting the amount of money necessary to start a new automaker. Right, but that's so. So
0: the automaker piece is one important component of Tesla of competing with Tesla. But the home energy services piece. I mean, sure, Amazon is investing in. Uh, voice services to integrate with smart thermostats and other smart home devices. It's made a bunch of acquisitions or investments in the smart home space. But that to me feels trivial compared to a company like Shell coming in and saying, we're going to build retail energy services off of the back of hardware that is proven and you know become much more involved in The establishment of a new business model as regulations change to aggregate these behind the meter systems. That feels very different than Amazon playing around with Tinker Toys in the home.
1: Yeah, I see a company like Centrica being more of a competitor because Centrica is a gas retailer in the UK and they have been investing also in connected home devices and they have a lot of access to homes. So I see the the retail industry like that being more of a competitor than a
0: Tesla. So imagine Shell's future jigger on the, the retail electricity front. What's Shell going to look like? Is it going to be this brand in the home that, we, that, that consumers are supposed to trust or that consumers do trust? What, is, what, what are they going to be in five, ten years' time? The
2: same thing they are now. I mean, Shell is one of the largest power traders in the United States. They will still be one of the largest power traders in the United States. They will just have physical assets by which to be able to make more money and take more risk, right? Like, I think that, yes, have they made a small investment in Inspire? And that business model, yes, I think they've done a lot of really good things to get closer to the home. But no, I don't think that Shell will be dominant in any way, shape, or form in terms of a brand in my home, right? I think that what they care about is power trading and mitigating their risk in power trading, and they want to make more money under FERC order 841, you know, when when battery storage gets fully integrated into independent system operators, they want to be able to make more money on demand response and load control, right? They want to make more money on the inter- Internet of Things technologies, but they're not looking to get retail. I mean, that whole business model for Shell, BP, others is where they go to die. I mean, they're not proud of all of the, you know, retail gas stations that they own. They're far prouder of the upstream stuff that they do.
1: Yeah. And Shell doesn't own the gas stations anyway, so they don't, they don't have those. But yeah, follow the money. This is about being profitable.
0: Well, let's um, go to our third story and tackle some lighting standards in the final segment, or I should say the Trump White House is tackling them, tackling them at the knees, trying to keep them to the ground. The Trump administration has gone after auto standards, power plant emission standards, an international climate agreement. So, hey, why not go after candelabras and Edison bulbs? This month, the Department of Energy said it would not enforce Obama-era lighting standards for a special class of light bulbs. Again, things like globe bulbs, candelabras, Edison bulbs, those really cool vintage ones with exposed filaments that you see in like every stylish bar and barbershop. Efficiency advocates are livid, of course. They say it'll wipe out $12 billion in potential savings a year. Catherine, um, let's go deep here. Like, How did we get to this place and why are lighting standards important? give us a history of lighting standards and where this particular class of lights fits in.
1: Yes. Buckle up into my DeLorean. We're going, we're going back. (laughs) So uh, the underlying legislation was developed under president Carter. It's called NECPA, the national energy conservation policy act that was signed into law in 1978. And it set forward some standards Um, when Reagan came into office. Now, President Trump is not the first administration to be anti-regulation. We had President Reagan and President uh, George W. Bush that also tried to pull back on these regulations. And the reason it was important for this NECBA to be put into place was that there was this natural tension between states and federal. So there were a lot of states that were first movers like California. On setting standards. And so you had this hodgepodge that drove the industry nuts because they needed they wanted to have some certainty as to what did they actually have to do rather than having a hodgepodge. This happens with every industry, right? You want to have something that brings everything together and it gives the industry some certainty. So when Reagan came in, he said, we're going to have no standards. We're going to have the, the states can do whatever they want. We will have a no standard standard, which the courts overruled and said no, overturned and said, no, you need to have standards. And if the federal standard is, is better than the state standard, that overrides the states. So states could move forward on their own as long as they were greater. Well, what's interesting is that John Dingell was at that point, the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, and Markey was the chair of the subcommittee that worked on this legislation. And oddly enough, last week, the first hearing was supposed to be on standards and energy and commerce. And it was bumped because of the funeral of John Dingell, who was the original chair. It's just a little side note here. So what John Dingell said is, I don't trust President Reagan. Um, And then the the new person coming in, Phil Sharp, who was the new committee chair said, we don't trust him to set forth standards. So what we're going to do is we're going to take codes like ASHRAE, which is, you know, the energy, you know, the standard for all kinds of equipment. And we're going to just cut and paste that language, which is very technical language into law. And then we're going to say that's the law and that's the minimum efficiency standard for whatever it is, whether it's refrigerators or water heaters. And, And Department of Energy can review those and tighten those, but they can never roll them back. Uh, President Reagan vetoed that. The industry begged him and said, please give us certainty. We need to know what we can produce. So it was signed into law in 1986. It was the National Appliance Energy Conservation Act of 1987. George H.W. Bush moved forward with EPACT 1992, which was the energy policy Act. Act setting new standards for lighting, motors, etc. So over time, all of these standards have been accruing to and adding up with new appliances, new pieces of equipment. And all along, this has been building on Carter's original underlying statute. And it's all been very, very technical, because the Congress did not trust the, the presidents coming in and out to you know, to not try to override them and to try to make them um, less stringent. because of this distrust by Congress in whatever new administration would come in, Congress has always been very, very specific as to what the standards are. And right now, we're at this place where this this law was in two thousand and seven, the Energy Independent and Security Act. Um, that was signed into law for these lighting standards. In 2020, they're supposed to take effect. Um, And right now, there's a notice of proposed rulemaking. So there's still a stakeholder process going on. It's still in play. Um, It just looks like the administration is going down the path of not putting those into effect.
0: My birthday gift to you was allowing you to tell us the history of lighting standards.
1: (laughs) <laughs> I am so grateful for all, to all the people I spoke to who took me down this path. It was really helpful. It wasn't me from the back of my brain.
0: Okay, so it's important to remember that what we're seeing now is not necessarily a rollback. It's, it's just that the DOE is saying we're not going to implement standards for this particular class of lighting that the Obama administration tried to hurry up as the administration closed.
1: Yeah, the Obama administration was simply trying to comply with the law. This is all in law, which is why Steve Nadell from the American Council for Energy Efficient Economy told me they feel like they have a pretty good court case ahead if it, if it moves for, if it, you know if, it, if these standards do not move forward, because this is all in law that the Department of Energy is supposed to develop rules that comply
0: with what Congress has set forth. Yeah. so Jigger, what's the impact here? Why does this matter?
2: Well, I think we've talked a lot about this on the show, which is that there are a lot of private sector efforts that people can make to say, "Well, LED lighting is better than what you have now; you should switch," etc. But if you really want change to happen quickly, you really want to do it through mandates, which is really what these standards are, and and the and they've worked, right? I mean, since they've been in place, I would say the vast majority of the energy efficiency benefits that have been produced by the electric utility system in the past 10 years have come from lighting standards, right? I mean, they've had such a huge impact going from LED lights that have, you know, up to like 81, 90 lumens per watt, uh, replacing, you know, the CFLs that had 45 lumens per watt or replacing incandescent light bulbs that were at 18 lumens per watt has had a monumental impact on the reduction of kilowatt-hour sales um, in our economy, even as our economy has been growing um, at a record pace um, since 2008. So, so I think it's had a huge impact, and it's it's a story of what really works in energy efficiency. I just don't think that the voluntary standards of trying to convince people that LED lighting is better is going to work at speed and scale.
1: Yeah, Steve told me that by 2025, this rulemaking, if it goes into effect with the standards would save $12 billion a year. So it's $100 for every single household in the country, every single year, like ongoing. And just to, to look back at standards, Jigger, you make a good point about how important it is um, to set these forth. The average refrigerator in America today uses half of what the refrigerator 20 years ago used. That refrigerator 20 years ago used half of what the one before 20 years before that used. So the average refrigerator today uses a quarter of what it did 40 years ago. And the sales price in today's dollars has dropped by 50%. They have more features. They're bigger. They're much more efficient. So standards not only push innovation they also save people money. Uh,
2: Now, that being said, right, look, I do think that we should all be a little bit cautious about, um, you know, going to a 10 on this particular issue. Um, You know, I think that most of the lighting standards are going to be in place. California did put the final lighting standards in place in 2018. Um, Other states, you know, do have the right, I think, to copy California. And so... I don't think that in general we're gonna lose the hip lose the hipster uh bar, but it by the way, like I don't know where you go to get your haircut, Stephen, but the hair cuttery doesn't have these uh you know glow bulbs that I go to. <laughs>
0: um, Every once in a while when I need a, an expensive
2: haircut, I'll go to one, but usually I just go to supercuts <laughs> and they just have terrible lighting. <laughs> so so i do want to make sure that we're being a little bit cautious about the fact that they're not eviscerating lighting standards but i do think that that moving to the next level of, you know, making permanent these expectations around the lighting standards would have a very positive impact on consumers around the country. And so I do think that they should keep moving forward to get these very, um, you know, good standards in place. But I think there's a lot of good that's already been done by the 2007 law. And, you know, we're, we're reaping a lot of benefits from that.
1: Yeah, and I would also point to ACEEE has done a report that just came out this month on energy efficiency over time, measuring and valuing energy savings and policy and planning for all of these different technologies. So it's worth taking a look at that.
0: So when you are in your, your electric vehicle on the way to the Home Depot to pick up your LED light bulbs, what are you obsessing over? What's what story has caught your attention? What's your free electron, Catherine? It is your birthday. I always I always allow you to go first. Anyway, I've, our listeners about to tally this. No, went first this. last time. That's right. That's right. But it is your birthday, <laughs> so you definitively get to go first. What's your free electron?
1: Yeah, and I only have one, so I'm not even taking full <laughs> advantage <laughs> of the occasion. So we've talked a lot about the Green New Deal and a, about the way it really highlights. Um, people who are disproportionately impacted. And one of those categories is people with disabilities. And so I was I was kind of looking at that and thinking, what did that really mean? So there's this World Institute on Disability um, with this new earth disability piece of it, in which a, a fellow that I know a little bit, Alex Guinness, works on to really look at what does happen in climate change with people with disabilities? And you think about these storms or fires and how do people evacuate if they are in wheelchairs or otherwise disabled during heat waves? How do people stay cool? Um, There's just this whole other level of impact that I think we have to pay attention to. And we don't enough because in so many situations, uh, those people become invisible to us. So uh, it's just something in addition to communities of color and communities of need, there's this whole other segment of disabilities that we need to pay attention to. So I would, I would suggest that people look at the World Institute on Disability and all of that they've, all they've written on climate change
0: impact. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the sentiment. And I think it, is another example of why a lot of climate advocates are talking about climate change in a much bigger context. They're trying to just not just separate carbon pricing or talk about a renewable portfolio standard. They're saying, "Hey, there's all these other issues um, that are going to feed into climate policy that we need to be thinking about." So I definitely appreciate the the sentiment. Jigger, what's your free electron?
2: So I wanted to recognize um, Warren Washington he received the you know Tyler prize which is the nobel prize for the environment uh this last week and you know he's 82 years old and built the first climate model um at the national center for atmospheric research in 1963 and you know he was also the second african american to get um a phd in um in meteorology and you know it's just it's just a real testament to extraordinary strides that, you know, that have been made in this sector. And, you know, remembering that a lot of these folks were working on this issue 60, 70 years ago is, I think, important.
0: I have been thinking about a national emergency and what happens when a president declares a national emergency. Of course, the president is declaring a national emergency in order to try to get funds for the wall for security purposes. It has... Republicans worried that Democrats will come in and do the same thing and Marco Rubio was on television actually saying, "Hey, well if we get a Democratic president, then they're probably going to do this for climate change." And so a lot of journalists and thinkers went out and said, "Well, what what would actually happen if a president declared a national emergency Uh, for climate purposes, for climate action purposes. And we do have a lot of folks who are talking publicly about this now. And uh, Brian Kahn of Gizmodo, who's a fantastic climate writer, wrote a great piece summarizing work from Dan Farber of the University of California, who looked into the 140 statuses that any president can draw from when declaring some kind of national emergency. And there are all kinds of ways that you could move money or uh, stop activity. Um, You could stop drilling activity on public lands. You could shut down offshore drilling on the Outer Continental Shelf. You could coordinate, quote, coordinate transportation systems. You could shut down marine vessels. You could, quote, create, maintain, protect, expand, or restore domestic industrial base capabilities for the national defense. In other words, make an argument to build out big factories for clean technologies. Um, obviously, like there's a lot of room for interpretation here, and these are very controversial, extremely controversial ideas. I wonder what you guys think about this. I mean, of course, I think that the consensus is that this is just very dangerous, right? When you when you start heading into this territory, there are all sorts of unintended consequences, and we should be extremely, extremely skeptical about using uh, executive authority in this way. But a lot of climate advocates are saying, well, this is the true emergency, and we've got 15 years to act in a meaningful way, and if we can't get congressional action, then maybe the climate emergency is the way to act on this. How? What, what do you guys think about that argument?
1: I do not like to go around the system. I think Congress is responsible for deciding how money is spent by, you know, by the Constitution. I think we need to do that. Um, and I think that having the president be able to to do that on his or her own and just take funds from wherever that Congress has decided need to be spent, I think is not good. I don't think it'll stand up in court what Trump is doing now, but I guess we'll have to see. I also am very curious what's gonna happen on March 15th um, with the school strike. So th- this, this may highlight the emergency situation, what Greta Thunberg is doing um, in Europe is coming to the US on March 15th with all these kids walking out of school.
0: Well, that's gonna do it, folks. Happy birthday, Catherine. Enjoy your lovely dinner tonight. Thank you. Don't go on too much about lighting standards and solar tariffs.
1: I'm married to someone who worked on those, so that would be a delightful conversation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Jigger, enjoy your trip out on the West Coast. May it be fruitful for your business.
2: Yes, I am going to be looking at light bulbs more carefully now today.
0: With Catherine Hamilton and Jiggershaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media. Hit us up on Twitter with your ideas. You can also direct message me if you have any specific ideas. I'm at Stephen Lacey. Very easy to find or direct message The Energy Gang account. Thanks for being with us. We will catch you next week.